So what's Jesus' favorite exercise? CrossFit. There are Jews in the world. There are Buddhists. There are Hindus and Mormons. And then there are those that follow Mohammed's butt. I've never been one of them. How's your faith these days, Father? So big, so absolutely huge. Do you think maybe he's compensating for something? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. Greetings and salutations. I'm trying to get this back going in the way it should, but I need to let you guys in on a little bit of something. There's some crazy stuff happening in the Episcopal Diocese of Southern of Nevada, and it's been kind of driving me crazy because it seems like every day it's something crazy, something new. I don't know what the hell to do with it. So in any case, deal with me, help me out, keep listening. We're going to get back on track this week. I'm dropping this one now, and then on Sunday, as usual, we're going to have another one. I'm not going to bed until I got it all done. So, I love you guys. Let's hit it. For this, this seventh week after Pentecost, we got Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 13. Here we go. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive anyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you had a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing set before him. And he answers from within, don't bother me. The door's already been locked and my kids are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he is not, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. At least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask. And it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. If there is anyone among you who, if a child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit those who ask Him? Now I gotta say that when I'm thinking about the Christian gospel, I see that there's always two ways of talking about it. One of them is all brainy. 
you know, with terms and concepts formed by scholarly and classroom approaches. The second way of speaking theologically is to use situations and relationships of everyday life. And every Christian works out his understanding of the gospel using a little bit of both of these. See, even the ordinary, plain, everyday Christian knows a little something about that learned theological style. For there's a lot of it in the New Testament based on insights of philosophy and sophisticated and academic traditions, even ancient ones. When we read that prologue to the Gospel of John that states, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God is to hear the good news of God in Christ in terms of Greek philosophy. And when Jesus is teaching those disciples today in Luke to pray, our Father, we are in the presence of a very profound everyday theological style. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of churches and times when that the importance of a learned style of theology just escapes the church. It's not recognized. And there have been times when Christians thought that all they needed was that everyday theology. Albert Outler, or Outler? Yeah, I think it's Outler. Um, anyway, he's a theologian and says that the early Methodist circuit writers had this bias, so to speak. They joined with a lot of lay people and resisted the call for an overly educated clergy, thinking that they did not need that theological heritage of past days. They were very confident in their ability to preach and theologize out of their own narrow experiences in education. And actually, it's out here. I misspelled that first one up there. See, this is what happens. <laughs> anyway, they they already knew everything they didn't need to know, which I think is sad because today there's a lot of prejudice and suspicion towards those forms of theology that ground themselves in learning and in that scholarly wisdom that you find through study and books and reading and discussing among your the fellow's deep philosophical points, you know, hermeneutics, homiletics, things of that. But we have to remember that the gospel probably would not have survived it if it wasn't for those learned styles and terms. When those first Christians hit Gentile soil, they discovered the necessity to proclaim the gospel in the academic styles familiar to the Gentile audiences. So we may piss and groan over the pedantry over those early church councils like the Council of Nicaea and others. Antioch, I think, was another one. Uh, they're escaping my head right now. But wrestling with the relationship of human and divine natures of Christ, as they did in those councils, those debates some finally hung on a single letter between using Hamusa, Sia, M. Sorry, I can spell really H-O-M-O-O-U-S-I-A or H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-A U-S-I-A 
you know, you think it would be easier considering I actually wrote this. I'm staring right at the word ADHD. What? It just won't leave me alone. And by the way, in case you're wondering, this was a big part of the Nicene Council. Uh, Homoousia meant uh, of the same essence, that Jesus and God were of the same essence. Versus Homoousia, which is an errant heresy, which claimed that they were not. That in fact they were, uh, that God the Father and God the Son are of like but not identical substance. Which would mean that... It's not a trinity because they're not of the same substance. It's pretty deep stuff, actually. But to get back onto point, the distinction is crucial for that church and its future. And we owe a superly large debt to those who contended for theology in a learned style. Think how the faith of countless Christians was well served by those who rethought the gospel after coming of Darwin and the evolutionary theory, recasting Christian convictions in a way that included new human wisdom and made an intelligent and enthusiastic faith possible for many, many Christians. Imagine how our world would have changed if instead of taking the scriptures as we do through a learned style combined with that everyday style, if we had let that die, we would not be able to embrace the LGBTQIA uh, teachings. And because we wouldn't understand how the Bible has been translated so many times or how history has affected Christianity over so much time, we wouldn't accept women as priests, deacons, and bishops. So, our history shows the rich treasures of a learned theological style. And the need for this learned style of theology, one that takes into account all facets of human wisdom, that's history, philosophy, sociology, it's not diminished today. In fact, if anything, it is more important. There's new things being discovered all the time that shape that learned style. Learning that in history, there was a point in time when the Roman Catholic Church accepted and honored same-sex relationships. Now they're hiding it. Second, that came out. But you know what? Truth is what truth is, brothers and sisters. And that's just the fact. It's a learned theology. And my last point is why it, the need for it is heightened in light of current trends. It's no secret that a simplistic, black and white, and sometimes thoughtless version of faith are in the ascendancy today. Major denominational publishing houses played down the findings of over a century of biblical criticisms so that their materials don't offend the prevailing mood. The ordination of a bishop of the Church of England is met with furor because he holds a non-bodily view of the resurrection. Creationists mistakenly thinking that they are defending the faith hold state legislatures hostage to their twisting of science and scripture. And media Christianity is at its best a bundle of bland and inoffensive platitudes a package of uncritical theolog theologizing that drives more deeply the wedge between the gospel and the word and the world. Too little of today's proclamation of the gospel is bathed with any redeeming thoughtfulness.
Now, way back in the 60s, there was a dean of Harvard Divinity School. His name was Samuel Miller. Once he told, he, he told the students one time that serious learning and its application to the gospel is indispensable. Quote, let the minister be sure his mind is sharpened to its utmost, lest he blunder about the world with a rough and stupid carelessness, hoping that he might hit upon the will of God merely because of his good intentions, end quote. These words aren't strictly for clergy. These words are for all of us, all of Christ's people. If all of our talk about the ministry of the laity is to be more than verbal ventilation, then the laity have needs for such marching orders, too. Because see, service to Christ as well as personal spiritual growth are in need of the richness that serious thoughtfulness can bring to them. And World Durant, a historian, made a plea when he went to church he not be asked to leave his critical intelligence in the narthex along with his hat. We are in serious danger of failing, Durant. With our attention on those multitude who are flocking to the proclaimers of the gospel, whose presentation is untarnished by a serious grappling of the wisdoms of science, biblical criticism, or the prevailing arts. By that I mean hermeneutics, uh, sociologics, uh, that's apologetics, and, and like the uh, science of grace, I guess you could say. The, w- without these prevailing arts... We are looking at the fact that we are creating a new mission field. Those who drop out of faith because it appears too simplistic, obscure, and anti-intellectual, and more also, very, very exclusive. According to Cone Morris, uh, the pulpit is one of the few remaining places in our society where serious issues are discussed. It may be that neither the pulpit nor the church lives up to this high calling, and we should not let such judgment easily slide by. We have to stand strong, and we have to preach Jesus' word, regardless of how much money we're going to lose or how many people we're going to upset because we're telling them to live as Christ asked us to. When one of the parishioners of my church was moving from our community, she was saying her goodbyes. She spoke the usual polite words about her appreciation for the church and even uh, the ministries that we shared. Then she said, I'm not sure that I always liked it here, but you always made me think. That was taken as a profound compliment that we hardly deserve. I was very pleased to accept it, though. Because there is a desperate need for a theological style that helps serious and thoughtful Christians, young and old, to match up the gospel and our modern learning and culture. We are losing too many who are insulted or bored by the simplistic theology, this black and white, love-hate, hate-the-sinner kind of theology that is present in our day. Let's remember that when Jesus repeated the commandment, he said that one of the ways of loving God, a way that is on par with the rest, is with all our mind. It may be easier in the short run to ignore this teaching of of God, but 
in the long run. It is not only dishonest, but clearly destructive. Now, when Karl Barth retired and in his later years visited American Theological School, um, one of the students asked him, how would you characterize your theology, Dr. Barth? And he thought for a moment and said his answer was a song he learned when he sat on his mother's knee. It's also a uh, hymn that a particular member of the choir that I used to sing in hates because it's so simplistic. But it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. Isn't that just mind-blowing? A renowned theologian, no stranger to using all of his mind as he deals with the meaning of the gospel, wrapped it all up in a little Sunday school tune that all of us know, alongside with his wide-ranging academic theology. He kept an everyday theology. And Jesus was a master of this theological style. This can be seen in passages of prayer in Luke 11. The disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray. And the result of it is the Lord's Prayer, along with some additional encouragements to pray. But look at the everyday images in this text. Father, bread, kingdom. When Jesus depicts two everyday experiences that emphasize God's willingness to respond to our praying, getting up at night to help a pestering friend, and a father who gives good things to his children. Beyond this passage, we might think of the many parables as drawn from the common stuff of everyday life that Jesus had seen. So, how often in our complex theological wanderings are they solved by resorting to an everyday theology? Take the question of ultimate destiny. One might ask if there were, if there really is an everlasting hell apart from one's desire to have it that way. Does God send someone to eternal separation from his love? If we run that question by our everyday theology, it might come out something like this, that no, there is not an everlasting hell as far as God would have it so. Why? Because it just would be unthinkable for any human parent. None of us, no matter how disappointed with our sons or daughters, would ever close out the possibility of their change of heart and not allow them to return to the family in our love. Theology drawn from everyday experiences believes that we can never truly drift beyond his love and care in this life or the next. And everyday theology works when we are struggling with the experience of suffering and evil. Sooner or later, we are all caught in some great personal pain and anguish. We wonder if God has deliberately sent this affliction upon us. When that doctor tells us we have an incurable disease or our partner decides that he or she no longer wants to have a relationship with us, or a plane goes down with our son or daughter aboard. Yeah, we have thoughts about God causing all of this. And granted, God can and does teach us through these terrible moments, but admittedly, they can be more graceful than we initially understand. 
But we must say that God does not deliberately send such pains and sufferings upon us. Again, an everyday theology provides the answer. If we ask the question in an everyday context, would a human father work this way? Would a mother ever act this way towards her children? The answer becomes inescapably clear. No. My role as a human parent would never allow me to do that to my son and daughter. Sorry, sons and daughters now. Huh. Even for supposedly good purposes. And in everyday theology, embedded in the realities and good sense of everyday life and relationships, is a very valuable piece of spiritual equipment. So I guess the conclusion of this is live up the vital necessity of both a learned and everyday look, 3D glasses, if it were, of theology. The wisdom to know that most of the truth of God and man is both and, not either or. It is both a learned and everyday theology together. To use one with the exclusion of the others to simplify the tension at a loss of depth, richness, and truth. We'll always continue to need a learned theology. It is part of the apologetic task of our day. And let's remember that the sound, intellectual preaching of Ambrose of Milan, played a major part in the conversion of Augustine. Harry Emerson Fostick confesses in The Living of These Days that it was the vibrant modern thinking of a theology professor that made Christianity a continuing option for him and many others of his generation. Elton Trueblood has widely said that an intellectual argumentation does not create Christian conviction. He also knows that intellectual sharpness can remove obstacles that stand in the way of an intelligent response to Christ's offer. The proliferation of modern human wisdom and the simplistic mood in today's church make a theological style of this sort all the more necessary. We need and will continue to need that everyday theology to rough the, rub those edges smooth. Preferably, it will be an everyday theology that is conversant with and informed about and from that learned theology. This will serve to restrain our common everyday theology from failing and falling into excessive simplicities and dangerous anti-intellectualisms that abound in the media and local church theology. A model for this might be one of the couple centuries back, that of John Wesley. He's been called the folk theologian in proclaiming the gospel through preaching and writing. Wesley sought to clarify and strength sought the clarity and strength of the simple statement. He said he tried to communicate ad populum, which is to say in Latin, the bulk of mankind. 
Spinozan neither relish nor understand the act of speaking, not who, but who, notwithstanding, are competent judges of those truths which are necessary pre to present and future happiness. I design plain truth for plain people. Now, you can easily tell that Wesley was no intellectual dunce. He definitely outsmarted my tongue. He was an Oxford graduate and had a lively interest in everything from science to medicine and theater. Some more narrow follower, unfortunately, burned Wesley's extensive notes and condensations of Shakespeare's plays. He missed the wider spirit of his master. He once wrote a sermon titled Plundering the Egyptians, in which he insisted upon the necessity for Christians to appropriate the treasures of the profane word, world as they proclaim and live the gospel. This appropriation he imaged as plundering the Egyptians. This is no anti-intellectual, anti-cultural bumpkin talking about that plain truth for plain people. In fact, it, this is the only the sort of everyday simplicity that will effectively speak to our times with any true effect. An everyday theology, speaking through the images and circumstances of the daily routine, grounded in the best sacred or secular wisdom that human mind has been given, is a necessity for proclaiming, deciding, and living the gospel of our day. And I kind of suspect that it's always been so. Now, the problem does come also as where that wisdom and knowledge comes from. And I'm going to be honest, that's partly why I'm in the kind of a pickle. As you can tell from my sermon so far, I do practice a learned theology and give it and present it through those everyday theologies. I've been learning since I was born in the Episcopal Church. I've been grounded in Sunday school and beyond. I've read so much from so many of the greatest theologians of our time and times past. I remember cracking the interpreter's Bible when my age was still in single digits. I have looked at Greek and Latin transliterations of Aramaic for decades, fascinated by the history, the cultures, and everything. Just soaked it all up. But I did not ever attend seminary. No one ever taught me homiletics. I learned them on my own. I was given the word by my mentor, Michael Engfer, a priest of the Episcopal Church. He also loved to discuss my hermeneutics, another word that he gave me for that application of learned theology. I've been seeking ordination for 10 years. And because of my lack of any degree, 
I feel. They have been prejudiced against me. I won't even pretend that I have a calling. Although, if you've been listening, maybe you have a different opinion. So remember that we all need that everyday theology. And we need to be open to where that learned theology can bloom. Because, yeah, it has always been so. But how was it learned? How was it learned back then? How is it learned now? We can't all be Oxford graduates. But there's got to be something to say if we're just reading way too damn much. Amen. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed. And as always, thank you. If this is your first time listening, you've gotten to hear, you've made it. I hope I earned your subscription. And please give me five stars if you like this on Spotify. I'm thinking about starting to do these in a video format. So if you'd like to see that, let me know. Also, um... Yeah, go check out the merch. Again, anything that I make off of um, my podcast or my merchandise or Twitch or everywhere else that I am. If money comes in, 10% automatically goes to to benefit charities that espouse the one thing that I believe. True Christian values, which start with love and end with all are welcome. So I'll see see you shortly. Um, New episode comes out Sunday. I really enjoy doing this. And I let some politics and drama get in the way of it. It really drug me down for a bit. I have a lot of changes coming in the future, so I hope you stay with me. Anyway, love you guys. Take care. See ya.